Today we're going to basically finish our treatise in the heaven. Next week we're going to talk about, it's going to be related, but it's going to be, we're, we're going to go into the, the interim state from when you die until we get our resurrected bodies when Christ comes back. Because there's a few idea, a few different teachings out there and some of them are pretty pretty wrong. And so we're going to be discussing that next week. And then on July 30th, we're going to look at the, the other side of the coin, the ugly side of the coin, and that's the people who end up in hell and what hell will be like. Because it's one thing to look at all the great things of heaven, and it's another thing to understand where the unredeemed will spend eternity. And that's a, it's sobering, but it's very needed. So, we're going to begin today with what will we do in heaven? What, what are we going to participate in? Well, today on earth, I just did these numbers this week. Approximately, today, 189,757 people will begin their eternal destiny. Tomorrow, there's going to be another 189,757. The day after, another 189,000. You get the idea. Every day, just under 190,000 people will leave this earth. That means in about 10 days, 2 hours and 52 minutes. Every 10 days... 2 hours and 52 minutes, the same amount of people that live in the state of Idaho will be ushered into eternity. And many people fear death. A study conducted in 2019, 11% were very afraid of death. 31% were somewhat afraid. 27%, well, I'm not very afraid, but I'm afraid, just not very afraid. And 7%, I don't know. This leaves only 25% saying they were not afraid at all, and i got to believe it's really hard to tell the underlying thought process of why they were not afraid. Maybe they were just in a good mood when they took the test. Don't know. But compare this to the Apostle Paul's statement in first, first in Philippians. Not first. There's no first Philippians. Well, I guess there is. But there's only one. For in Philippians 121, for me to live, for, for, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain is far different from the fear of death. That means it's better. And only some of today's 189,757 that go into the presence of God where there is unbelievable, will go into the presence of God where there is unbelievable rejoicing. The place of joy, peace, love, praise, perfection will be incredible. And it's curious, though, to see what people are going to do there, what people think they're going to do there. Ideas include this, and these are kind of bizarre, some of them. Well, I'm going to polish the stones on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. And some say, well, it's nothing but rest. Just rest. Well, after a while, that's going to get a little old, right? Some think that technology will continue to increase. I thought that was kind of an odd thought. And, uh, well, we're going to travel perhaps to different planets, to distant planets. Of course, there's no idea there's going to be any life there, but people think that. That Some people. It's been a Christian belief for a long time that some of the things people have written about heaven that were believers travel the planet. Yeah. Yeah, I want to travel the planets. Yep. Some people actually think that there's going to be events like we have now on earth will continue in heaven, like sporting <coughs> events. Well, we're going to 
play golf. Like I tell you right now, you ain't going to play golf because that's a frustrating thing. But, uh, but you know, sporting events and to- those types of things. You know, again, that's all from the perspective of the culture that they live in. The people in Nepal that we were just talking about aren't thinking, I'm going to play golf in heaven. Right? Many, if not most, relate the activities in heaven to the activities on earth. And of course, what activities we may think of come from the place and time you live on earth. Those living in the 5th century would have had way different ideas from those living in the 21st century. And those living in America today will have far different ideas than those living in other parts of the world like we were just talking about in Nepal. We must remember, and I said this earlier, heaven is not what we want it to be. Heaven is what God will make it to be. Now to begin, we can from Scripture determine a little bit of what heaven will not include. And you have a partial list in your notes. We will never struggle with sinning. We will never have to apologize. We will never have guilt. We will never feel bad about anything. We will never need to make anything right. I had a person call me up this week. Hey, if I hurt your feelings, I'm sorry. He didn't. You know, but you won't have, won't have to even think about that because there won't be anything to be made right. We will never have to defend ourselves. Yes, but, right? We will never have anything to criticize. We will never be sad. We will never be lonely. This is one that a lot of people will like. We will never hurt emotionally. <clears throat> Anybody's ever been hurt emotionally? Yeah. We will never hurt physically or be sick. And we'll never then never need to heal. Kitty won't need an artificial knee. I won't need I've got one too. Okay? We won't need that. We won't need these things called glasses. That'll be nice. It's like I've said before, you might have heard me say it, never trust a faith healer who wears glasses. Um, We will never grieve. We will never lose anyone. Or we will never miss anyone. We will never have to plan for contingencies or emergencies. We will never be in danger. I like this one. I think I took it out of your list because I was trying to save space so it fit. Nothing will ever be ugly. And we will never be filled with anything less than total absolute joy. Now that's a great list. But what will we do? For specifics, we're going to have to wait because God hasn't told us. But we are given some general direction. Number one, we will worship God and we will worship Christ. Remember in the New Jerusalem is the temple of God and God's glory will be everywhere. We will worship God And there will be a filling, not out of compulsion. It will be perfect praise. I don't know about you, but I've had this, and I'm assuming you have too. Each of us have had times when we intend to worship God and something happens to mess it up. Thoughts enter our minds. Has that ever happened to you? I'm sitting there and man, I'm clear over here. And I, I can get there really fast. There's no physical interruptions or focus interrupters, if you want to call it that, that take our attention away from its intended target. We don't have to deal with such things there. And Revelation is full 
of images of worship in heaven. And we turn to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 to 12, where it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Well, that's pretty neat. From every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and cry before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne of God and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now I had a comment written in my notes that when I taught this about 10, 12 years ago. And just last week a person asked me the question that I had in my notes. And so I I dug into it just a little bit. Now, I'm going to stay up front now. This is 100% speculation. Okay? Notice verse 9. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, all tribes, and peoples, and languages. The question was, what language would people speak in heaven? It could be one language, like what had occurred before the Tower of Babel that we see in Genesis 11. We here we have in Revelation 7 all tribes, all peoples and all languages. John could have just written all tribes and all peoples and left out languages, but he didn't. And it's the word, you know, uh, glossa, or that's the the root word. Going back to Acts 2, each one heard in their own language what the apostles were saying. Now the speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2 were assigned to the unbelieving Jewish people. So this couldn't be exactly the same thing in Revelation 7, but could it be a similar phenomenon? We don't know. One point this passage makes is that all people will be unified. When they speak here, however we speak, Everyone will understand each other regardless of the tribe or the people in the language. I talked to Jim Harris about it. He thinks it's going to be the pre-Babel language. Could be. It could be that we'll speak English and everybody else will understand it. Fun to think about. Doesn't matter. But the, the point is everyone will be unified. There's not going to be non-unity. You also notice that there's going to be nations and tribes. Let's go on. That's enough speculation. Revelation 19, 1 to 4. Oh yeah, great multitude that no one could number. Not, it, yeah, it's, it's. <laughs> no, it just came to me that, 
it, it's not it's you not as a great par, a number of people all doing the same thing it, to to God Himself. Mm-hmm. That's a whole lot more valuable than winning a game that you're going to forget about next week right. or next year or whatever. Revelation nineteen one to four says this. After I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. We have this loud, great multitude. Salvation, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged her blood on his, of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. As a reminder, the word hallelujah means to praise God. Hallelujah is praise and Yah is God or Yahweh. So you push them together. Hallelujah means praise God. That's one reason I hate that one song that uh, uh, I think Paul McCartney or somebody wrote or George Harrison or somebody, you know, hallelujah, hallelujah. And then they start throwing Hare Krishna in there and stuff. That's, that's demonic in my mind. It's a beautiful song, but don't, don't play it in front of me, please. Um, because it's not praising God. Hallelujah means to praise God. And we will see the majesty and the glory and the perfection of God. And we will respond in worship. And like, like Connie just said, it's going to be, uh, it's just going to make the hair stand up on the back of our neck in a sense. It's going to be so incredible. John MacArthur quotes E.L. Maskell on this element of praising God. And I put it in your notes. He wrote this. The sole justification for praising God is that God is praiseworthy. We do not praise God because it does us good, though no doubt it does. Nor do we praise Him because it does Him good, for in fact it does not. It is purely and solely directed upon God. It takes our attention entirely off ourselves and concentrates it entirely on Him. Entirely on Him. Our love for God will be perfected. And we will love our God with our total capacity. And in this life, we struggle with that. We want to worship Him more and praise Him more, but we struggle with that. The next thing, and I think this is very interesting, is that we will reign with Him. 2 Timothy 2.12 says this, If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. In Revelation 22.4 and 5 says, They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they, they will not have the need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Heaven is not like what many people think, which is like an unending vacation, or a perpetual life in God's theme park. We will have responsibility and duties with regard to the ongoing operation of the eternal state. We will reign with Him. In this life, spiritual gifts have been given to each believer to enable us to minister to others. We all have something that God has given us to minister to each other. We will be given a sphere of responsibility and authority within the ongoing kingdom of God for eternity. In heaven, we will be perfect in our operation within that authority that we've been given will be as well. MacArthur points out that, quote, we will never 
fail to fulfill our responsibility, whatever that may be. So you're just not sitting on the porch drinking iced tea. There is responsibility. There is reigning. 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We have an inheritance for us that is unfading. I don't know about you, but if you go back and look, especially the older ones in here, if you go back and look at pictures you took 30 years ago, they get a little faded, don't they? Especially if they're put, put on the one Kodak paper that really faded a lot more. They fade. But guess what? They're not going to fade. An inheritance is something we receive from someone else, and it will be imperishable, unfading. And it's going to be whatever our Father delegates or gives to us. Our inheritance includes, but is not limited to, eternal life, heaven, holiness, joy, peace, the presence of God, those types of things. Now, in Romans 4.13, we read, For the promise of Abraham, or for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants is that we would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then go to Galatians 3, it says, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So we are called, believers are called the sons of Abraham. And then we go to Romans eight sixteen and 17. It says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we indeed suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This is hard to really understand a lot we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ therefore we are heirs of what is to come MacArthur had a good quote here I liked it he said Christ was not an heir to eternal life he had eternal life he was not an heir to joy he had joy he was not an heir to peace he had peace he was not an heir to holiness he had holiness he was not an heir to heaven heaven was where he came from he was an heir to what was this world he was an heir to the sphere of rule christ will rule concerning that psalms 2 7 and 8 if we go back to the psalms says, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today you, I have begotten you. Ask, of you. ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The idea that we are a joint heir with Christ emphasizes that there is a sphere of authority, of responsibility for the people who are joint heirs with Christ. And if you're a believer, that's you. If I'm a believer, that's me. Now we go to Revelation verse 9, or chapter 5, verse 9. I know we're going through a lot of passages here, but you kind of get the idea after we read through a lot of these. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. This is talking about Christ. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open the seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now the scroll in Revelation 5 is the title deed to the earth. Christ has the right to open 
the scroll. And when he does, it begins the judgments of the tribulation period. Christ is the heir to the nations and heir to the earth. We will reign with Christ over the nations and the earth in the eternal state. Now, I don't know how that's going to play out. But we will have some responsibility there, something to do. Remember, as we read earlier in Revelation 22.5, it says of the believers, they will reign forever and ever with Christ. Now, in 1 Corinthians 6.3, in 1 Corinthians 6.3, it says, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So we're going to have some authority over angels in a governing sense. This is not like a judge sitting on a bench. It's more of a governing matter. I had never really thought much about heaven from that perspective. We're going to have some responsibility. Now to get a little idea, we can turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25 contains the parable of the talents. Here, the man went on a journey and left talents, five to one servant, two to another, and one to the last. And when he returned, he found that the first and second service used and multiplied those talents that they were given. And the third service did nothing but buried it and brought it back. And in verse 21, the master says in this parable, Well done, Good and faithful slave, you were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This is a picture of heaven in the plight of the faithful one who responded with the opportunity to come to Christ. And we see here that in heaven there seems to be a position of ruling in proportion to the spiritual dimensions of this life. Somehow our position of ruling in heaven is in proportion to our faithfulness in serving Christ. Now God is fair, and God is equitable, and God is also sovereign. Whatever authority a person has in heaven, there's going to be no sense of loss, no sense of comparison to others. Oh man, I wish I'd have done better so I could have been like... George over here. We're not going to have that because we're not going to be susceptible to jealousy or pride or envy. People have different levels of opportunity to serve Christ and there's unequal opportunity here. Some people respond to the gospel when they were young. And they had the privilege of walking with him for many years. Others hear and respond to the gospel shortly before their death. Some are very strong mentally and physically. Others are not. How will this differ in the roles in heaven? I I can't answer that. But God's going to be fair and and, and, uh, equitable in his sovereignty. We can't tell, but there will be something. To reinstate something that we stated a couple minutes ago, in heaven we will be perfect in our operation with that delegated authority. And we will, to quote a great theologian, we will never fail to fulfill our responsibility, whatever that's going to be. The authority, the responsibility, and the duty that we will have will be performed without failure, without tiredness, without anxiety. It can be performed and will be performed in total joy. Jesus alluded to how we live and how we'll impact the nature of this inheritance in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 20. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where, we, where thieves break in and steal. 
but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I had to ask myself, and you can ask yourself this, where am I laying up my treasures? Hopefully it all isn't in your 401k. The next thing we see is we will serve him as priests. Revelation 1, 5 and 6 says this, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Each believer is a priest in the sense that we can go immediately into God's presence. And in heaven, we will be a kingdom of priests to serve God. Now, if we go back to 1 Samuel, we see the story of Hannah, the mother of Samuel, dedicated the life of her child, Samuel, by taking him to live with the high priest. She put Samuel in the house of God and left him there for the duration of of his life quite a sacrifice when you think about it and priests in the old testament did things that the populace could not do they had a unique role and a unique intimacy with serving and worshiping god with the new covenant there was a change in that all believers come become part of a royal priesthood and we see this in first peter 2 9 where it says but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So, like a priest in the Old Testament, we can confidently approach God in His throne of grace. There is no need for a separate priesthood. This kind of wipes out one great big religious group. You have to go through the priest. No, you don't, because we can go straight to God Himself. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Priests are no longer required in this life to mediate between the people and God. <clears throat> so in heaven we will not only be able to approach the throne of grace like a priest, we will approach the throne of glory. We will not serve each other, we will serve God. In Revelation 22, the first verse says this, And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street on either side of the river was a tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bond servants shall serve him. The word for serve is a priestly service. We will render priestly service to God. We're not going to be in heaven doing nothing. You know, there's something in human nature, in every one of us, how God created us, that we need to do something. And what greater thing can we do than to serve the God who redeemed us? What kind of service will we do? I don't know. We're not given specifics. MacArthur said, and I agree with what he said, he said, I'm not sure we could understand them even if God was to tell us. Because we don't even know what heaven, we can't even fathom heaven. It hasn't entered into our mind. So if he told us, would we be able to even understand it? But as we look how God created humans, we see that he created us with a need to serve. We have a sense of creativity in us. We get pleasure out of accomplishing things. We get pleasure out of knowing that we have done something well. 
and what we will do in heaven will please God. Think about how that's going to feel. It's possible, and again, the word possible there, it's possible that the nature of our service is determined by what we do in this life. Jesus gave us parables telling of those who were faithful with the few would be remade uh, responsible over much. And there is a sense in which if you're faithful over a little bit of responsibility here, God will give you more responsibility in heaven. That's our inheritance or our reward. One idea, again, I know I'm quoting him a lot, but one idea that MacArthur teaches is that our reward in heaven was going to be a capacity for service. The greater our commitment to service in this life will grant a greater capacity to serve him in heaven. I don't know. It's possible. But there will be rewards as we see in 1 Corinthians 4, 1-5. to says, this is how we should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not therefore thereby acquitted. For it is the Lord who judges me, therefore do not pronounce pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from God so in verse 1 we see that we are stewards and servants verse 2 we see the servants are to be faithful In verse 3, it doesn't really matter to me how you judge me or how I even judge myself. In verse 5, the day is coming when we will receive our commendation from God. Every believer will receive their commendation or reward from God. Do we get this? Uh, I think too many believers think that their salvation is all they need to be concerned with. I've got the golden ticket. I'm good. Joel Osteen's heretical book, Your Best Life Now, doesn't spend time showing Christians how to serve the Lord. If we really want our best life now, this side of heaven, it would be to be found faithful to the Lord. That would be your best life now. So we could rewrite that book Take all the content out and put real content in there. Our best life now is when we are found faithful to the Lord. This is brought out in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15, where it says this, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burnt up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Yes? Bruce, is that in conflict with that list that you started with this morning? All the things we're not going to experience? I don't think so. I, I I would have a hard time saying, yep, yeah. 
I get to back to the other comment that um, our service is, our, our, our reward is going to be greater opportunity to serve Him. And, and yes, our works will be burned up. Will 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 be go? Will 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 we be going around heaven eternally in sorrow because we didn't do it? I don't think so. I think there's going to be greater joy, possibly, but it's not going to be a prideful joy because anything we do is because God has worked through us. So there's got to be that balance there. I think there's also got to be a very quick transition from the works being burned up and us being in heaven and that new course of seeing life differently and, and praising God and understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there is a sense in which it's done, it's over, and we're moving forward. I think that's probably true. And if we have a new perspective in heaven, we'll rejoice in the wood, hay, and stubble being burnt up. It's worthless. Worthless to God, it's worthless to us. We'll rejoice that it's gone and take joy in what's left. The gold, the precious stones, and so on. That's what I think. Because we can't be disappointed. That Yeah, that is a conflict. Uh, so I think we'll rejoice that that stuff is burnt up. It's gone. It was worthless. It was bad. Good question. It was corrupt. Yes. Second Corinthians five what? Uh, you guys are just going to get me off my subject, aren't you? Second Corinthians five ten. For we must appear to him, be, appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And bad is the quality or the worth. So what did you say about that? I just think it'll be just kind of quick, like um, he was saying that it will be over and dead, and even like Connie said, it will be happy that you're out from under all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you only going to answer that? I, I agree with Connie, and I think that's probably how it's going to be looked at. But certainly, But I don't think the responsibility. Yeah, we're not going to be envious of the people who have more uh, authority. Uh, again, like like Scott was saying, maybe that's that's going to be over and done with, and. <coughs> In a, in, a, in a moment. I don't think they'll even remember it. I just think once he's given you the glory that you're not even going to remember where all that other stuff was. It's going to be gone. It's going to be very interesting, and no one's asked that question. What are we going to remember about our lives? Um, I haven't gone there because um, I don't really know the answer to that. But, uh, um, yeah. There's going to be, there's absolutely going to be um, nothing that um, we will deal with that's going to bring uh, pain or remorse or those types of things. I wonder if it's partly because we look at this through our glasses now of this life. And once we get there, we're going to be different in the way we... And, and this... Hopefully, it should help motivate us to 
put our priorities right into worshiping God and to honoring God and to uh, laying aside gold, silver, and precious stones rather than wood, hay, and stubble. Because yeah. the work which we will do, you know, the worst, you know, the works work that we do in this life differs. We will be rewarded. Some of our works will be gold, some silver, some precious stone, and some of our works are going to be wood, hay, and stubble, and they're not going to survive a fire. What we will do with our privilege to serve here will determine what God does us by letting him serve there. And those are in those parables of the servants we find in Matthew and Luke. Remember, in each case, the Lord came back to reward his servants. He rewarded them in proportion. And so we will rule and serve in relation to how faithfully we have fulfilled our ruling responsibility here in our service here. And again, some people became believers early in life and other people might have became a believer a week before they died. Look at the thief on the cross. The hour before he died or within a day or so. We don't we aren't told when 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 they died, but we got to believe that when they came to break the legs of Jesus, they also were going to break the legs, legs of the other two so they would die quickly so they wouldn't have to deal with them over the Sabbath, you know. He didn't have very much time. Another passage on rewards is Daniel 12.3 where it says, And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So every indication is that our reward is then based on the faithfulness with which we have proclaimed God's message. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, it says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? It is not you, for you are our glory and joy. So Paul is saying here that part of our reward in heaven is going to be the reward of seeing those who are there because of our faithfulness. Imagine the joy of seeing people there in part because we were faithful to God in proclaiming his gospel. Someone proclaimed it to you. Someone proclaimed it to me. And it might have taken a day or it might have taken 15 years. You know? The joy there of, wow. So our rewards in heaven don't appear to be something we wear, but something we experience. Greater service, greater responsibility, and greater joy. In 1 Corinthians 9, 15, we read that we will receive an imperishable wreath. Unlike the glory we experience here, it will never fade. Think back on the last Super Bowl. Think back on the Super Bowl six years ago. Who won? I don't know. I might be able to figure it out, maybe, but i probably have to go look it up. What's that? But, but how excited were the winners at the last Super Bowl? They were just thrilled. That winning of euphoria certainly wore off. And for many, it wore off very quickly. Now try to think about the feelings in heaven. Forever enjoying that maximum moment of thrill that's never diminishing. Because it's got eternal value. In 2 Timothy 4.8. 2 Timothy 4.8. It says, In the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only me, but all those who love his appearing. The crown of righteousness is eternal righteousness. And this is something we experience. Eternal life, eternal joy, and the eternal privilege to serve God. And then Revelation 2.26 is another passage that refers to authority in heaven. Here it says, The one who conquers 
and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So what we will do with our life here determines how the Lord is going to use us in heaven. And notice, nations will continue. Authority over the nations. We're not just going to be one. You know, it's going to be similar to what we have now or what we think of. There are more passages that we could go to, but I think this is enough to give us a picture Our capacity for reigning in service will be related to how faithful we were with our responsibility and stewardship here. And there will be eternal joy, or there will be uh, enjoyment in eternal life to the maximum of our capacity, but that capacity will be determined by our life here. And I think that's kind of where you were going, Dennis. Our capacity will be greater um, if we serve God the way we should here. And that should motivate me. It should motivate you. It's real easy for me to get lazy and not do something. But this should help motivate us. The next thing we see is we will be continually refreshed. In Matthew eleven twenty nine and 30, Jesus said, Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We know when we've talked about we will rest, but this rest is different than you might think. It doesn't mean we're just going to go and sit down and veg out on a couch somewhere. Doing nothing like a perpetual retirement. I've known a couple people. Um, I asked one person not too long ago, what do you do? He says, nothing. I'm retired. (laughs) The only thing I think he does that he's told me is he mows the lawn. And that's it. Um, And he says, yeah, I don't do nothing. I'm retired. That's not what heaven is. Hebrews 4, 1 to 11 says this. It talks about the rest that there is for the people of God. And the rest refers to not becoming weary or weak. And I think about, of course, the older I get, how often do I get weary or weak or tired out? And I'm sure everyone in this room has had that happen to you, some more than others. In heaven, we will not know weariness or weakness. We will be at rest from those things. That's eternal rest. And the work that we will do will not cause weariness or tiredness or weakness. It's going to be just, it's going to be invigorating. And then we, this, this might blow you away a little bit. We will be served. In Luke 12, beginning in verse 35, Jesus tells us, quote, he says in verse 35, Be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. And then in verse 37 of Luke 12, We read, Blessed are those servants whom the Master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Who's going to come and serve who? The Master is going to come and serve the servants. The Son of God will render service to those whom He has redeemed. This is the image of the Master returning to His palace and His faithful servants that are waiting for Him. And when He comes, He has them recline at the table and He serves them. Remember what Jesus did in the Last Supper, washing the disciples' feet in John 13? It's amazing to say the least. Jesus did everything. And then he serves us. 
What will this look like? I can't fathom. But then again, I can't fathom why God has provided salvation for a group of people who rebelled against him. And then he provided us a heaven like we've been describing to live with him forever. He did it for his joy. The only answer is it brings God glory. This whole thing brings God glory. And what a thrill it will be to participate in the glory of God for eternity. Now, as a side note, this made me think, hopefully it makes you think, if have how I should serve other believers. All of us should do this. Some of us do it pretty well. Some of us need a little help. So, what is the benefit of looking toward heaven? We've done it for six weeks now. There's a partial list that I got from what MacArthur wrote. And I didn't add any more to it because I couldn't think of anything more. Number one, it's an evidence of genuine salvation. If we are preoccupied with this life, maybe that's an indication of our heart. Another benefit of looking toward heaven is it provides a motive to pursue a higher excellence of Christian character. Number the third one is, is the truest path to a life of joy. If you want to be miserable, just focus here on your present life, on you in your world and what it can bring you. If you want joy, focus on the Lord. The next thing, it is the best preservative against temptation and sin. When we set our affection on things above, as it says in Galatians, or Colossians 3, we mortify the deeds of the flesh. Another benefit of looking toward heaven, it maintains our drive or focuses our drive on spiritual service. When we see what we can do for eternity, it should help us in our motivation there. The next thing is it honors God. When our heart is set on heaven, we demonstrate our love for God. And, the, and then the last thing is it thanks God for what he has done. The psalmist said this, I will be satisfied when I wake in your likeness. I have to ask myself, what satisfies me? I want to ask you, what satisfies you? And does our life demonstrate that? Now on conclusion, we've spent now six weeks looking at what the Bible reveals about heaven. And we could go further. Some questions have been answered, but many have not. And really cannot be answered with great specificity. Recently, I came across a quote from a guy named John Murray, who was a Scottish-born theologian who lived in 1898 to 1975. Speaking on what God has prepared for his children, he said this. And this one just kind of gets me going pretty good. Hopefully it will you. God himself could not contemplate or determine a higher destiny for his creatures. I think I put it in there in your notes. God himself could not contemplate or determine a higher destiny for his creatures. What a great thought. And that's culminated in Revelation 7, 9 to 12. That says, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, 
salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Next week we're going to talk about the interim state and some of the stuff that's there. And that will finish the heaven piece, but this is kind of the it's kind of an addendum to what this is. So. Let's pray.